I see there are a few more jumping on. Um, but I do, I want to be respectful of everyone's time, especially yours, especially uh, what time you're doing this for us. So thank you so much, Dr. Noel, for coming on with us. This is the last of the Prince George Winyaw Linton Lecture Series celebrating um, our 300th anniversary and the heritage of Anglican worship in the Book of Common Prayer tradition. Thank you all for joining us. Um, just a couple housekeeping things. Um, I uh, will, for the, um, for the experience of everyone, take the liberty of muting folks if they happen to unmute themselves at a time when it's not supposed to be uh, that way. Uh, Dr. Noel has mentioned that he, will might, he might ask questions and uh, if he does, you are welcome to uh, unmute yourself and ask a question, please do. Don't be shy. Um, we wanna uh, get as much uh, out of this as we can. And I think if we have time, we'll have time for questions at the end as well, if uh, there's just more general questions toward the end. So, um, so please don't take offense if I mute you. I'm just trying to make it a better experience for everybody. Um, I do have it defaulted so that everyone but the speaker is muted, at least um, for right now. Uh, to better enhance your experience, um, up in the top right corner, at least of my Zoom, um, is uh, a choice of views. You can either do the speaker or the gallery. If everyone is muted except for Dr. Noel and you choose the speaker view, you'll be able to see him much better. Um, and so that is something that I offer to y'all as uh, something to enhance your experience. So I think that's all I have. Thank you all so much for joining us. Dr. Noel, thank you so much for doing this. We are, I'm very excited, um, if, if only just to push back a little when I can. Um, but please, if you would say a few words to introduce yourself and then uh, the floor is yours. I have never been told that the best way to enhance a person's experience is having a clearer, more blown up picture of myself. That is a very unusual introduction, which I'm sure may not come my way again. So I will appreciate it while I have it. Um, I think the, the three quick things to say is that I'm a pastor trapped in a research uh, project. Um, I write about Thomas Cramner by, by means of looking afresh at his private theological notebooks and finding more so that we can add more to the conversation. Um, I am based in Berlin, Germany, which is why it's dark here, uh, but I was born in Alabama. Ashley's a family name, and it's John Ashley. So traditional Southern confusion, uh, calling me by my middle name to make everything more complicated. But I was reared in Kansas, so I don't have a Southern accent, except I say y'all, and I do eat hominy. Because one of my great pleasures of coming to uh, Charleston is I get, you can't even get bad hominy in Berlin. You just can't get any. Let's pray. Lord, we would see Jesus tonight. Lord, we would hear Jesus tonight. Lord, we would be moved to love and serve Jesus tonight. Amen. Before I begin our discussion on the 2019 ACNA prayer book, let me begin with an important and sincere disclaimer.
prayer books lie at the very heart of our worship and our expression of faith. And Anglicanism through its centuries has um, attracted an eclectic group of traditions that have been deeply touched by God through them and therefore with uh, great fervor, someone might say ferocity, have disputed which version of Anglicanism is the true version. And surprise, surprise, um, understandings of the prayer book uh, both shape and reflect those different um, traditions within Anglicanism. Uh, I am uh, a full-blooded, heartily committed and sincere partisan of the low church tradition. I think that because I believe it has real pastoral power, but that doesn't mean that I un-Anglicanize others who have a different understanding of the prayer book. And a lot of the things we will talk about tonight, people will agree on the words, but, for, but ferociously disagree about how they are to be interpreted. Um, and I hope that in the midst of our talk, that you will be edified and not horrified. Um, so, because um, the bottom line for this series is how God has used uh, Prince George for 300 years to be instrument of the cure of souls for generations and generations of people. And the central word of the systematic praying of scripture, which is as Archbishop Robert Duncan has said, the purpose of the prayer book in the Anglican tradition, how that has given life. And I hope that by the end of our time that you will leave uh, excited that um, the ACNA prayer book has something to encourage you uh, shape and express your faith. All right, let's dig in to the particulars. Now I have been given 45 minutes to talk and then to open it up for questions. And while on the one hand, that may seem an eternity of having to listen to me, on the other hand, in terms of the issues involved in the prayer book, it is not much time at all. So what I would like to concentrate our discussion on three things. One, how many Anglicans very much want there to be a single Anglican identity and how that becomes a Procrustean bed for Anglican history. You may remember the man who had the bed that when the travelers came to visit, if they were too short, he lopped off their legs so they would fit the bed. Sorry. If they were too short, he stretched them out so they would fit the bed. If they were too tall, they would cut off their legs so they would fit the bed. For him, one size fits all. And one of the difficulties is that we have, I won't say a messy, but um, 
with organic growth that doesn't always go the way you would predict. Any gardeners here? Isn't that the whole point of having to prune and weed and trim? Because just because it's organic doesn't mean it's going to end up being beautiful, right? So that they, you have, they've had to make choices on how to try to get um, a, a normative Anglican understanding and praxis. And then if you do that, how hard it is to be faithful to the doctrine of the formularies because the formularies were shaped in the 16th century by a very particular understanding of Anglicanism that did not continue to be dominant in Anglicanism in succeeding centuries. All right. So, and then I want to look at two issues, how that conflict plays itself out in the ACNA Book of Common Prayer. One, the issue of human nature and the issue of Christ's presence in the Holy Communion. Some of you, of you were asking, how, is the, how faithful is the 219 BCP to earlier uh, prayer books? And those are two key issues that can help us get a feel of what is the project, what is gained by that project, and what may have been lost. Okay, any questions about where we're heading? Yes, no, good. All righty, if you have a, an ACNA prayer book in front of you, you might wanna to turn to the preface. Could, is someone brave and bold enough to read for us the opening paragraph? Because I only will half of you on my screen, I'm afraid I can't recognize. I elect Ryan Landis to read the preface. Do I hear a second? All right, I will. Just the first paragraph, because then we have our new deacon. He gets to read a section too. He would be happy to. First paragraph of the preface. Christianity, the fullness of the good news about Jesus Christ, came very early to what would eventually be called Anglia, England, through the witness of soldiers, sailors, merchants, and missionaries. Legend holds that the biblical tomb giver, Joseph of Arimathea, was among the first of those scattered evangelists. And what, read one more sentence, please. The early Christian mission in the British Isles was an encounter with pagan tribes and societies. Okay, where, what is the theological point is being made by this opening paragraph? Has anyone mentioned Anne Boleyn? Anyone mentioned Henry VIII? Not even Edward VI? I believe Where everyone's six came up in a very Sorry. 
where are they beginning the story of Anglicanism? With people who are not in the church yet. Yeah, and what era? Roman era. Could, could even be Patrick. Exactly. They're saying the Reformation isn't the beginning of the independent Church of England. They're making very clear that their understanding of Anglicanism is of a long process, and it's not in any way specially defined by the Reformation or Henry VIII. That's an important theological uh, presupposition for all that comes. Now, um, let's turn to um, uh, on page two. Uh, Nelson, do you see the uh, first full paragraph all across Europe? I do. Could you read that for us? Certainly. All across Europe, the 16th century is marked by reform of the received tradition. So great was this period of reevaluation, especially concerning the primacy of the Holy Scriptures, that the whole era is still known to us as the Reformation. Do you know any, it, do you notice any interesting word that is not used that you usually associate with the word Reformation? <laughs> Could it be Protestant? Certainly could be, but you probably have Luther in there and a few others. Right, but what we're hearing now is this is not a Protestant Reformation. Right. This is a Reformation of the medieval church engaged on all sides, mm. not, in, not just in Germany, all across Europe. Now, we then come to the next paragraph. Nelson, could you read that? And it's a long one, but it's worth reading. Certainly. <clears throat> Archbishop Thomas Cranmer, 69th Archbishop of Canterbury, who was martyred at Oxford in 1556, led the English phase of the reform of the church life and church worship. Undoubtedly, Cranmer's most enduring achievement was his replacement of the numerous books of the Latin liturgy <clears throat> excuse me, with a carefully compiled book of common prayer. This was a prayer book in the vernacular, one which brilliantly maintained the traditional patterns of worship, yet which sought to purge away from worship all that was contrary to Holy Scripture or to the ordering of the primitive church. The book of common prayer from the first edition of 1549 became the hallmark of a Christian way of worship and believing that was both Catholic, small c, and reformed, continuous yet always renewing. According to this pattern, communities of prayer, congregations and families, rather than the monasteries of the earliest centuries, would be the centers of formation and of Christ-like service to the world. That last sentence is absolutely accurate, that one of the things that, forgive me for using the word, the Protestants wished to introduce was that family 
rather than a separate holier celibate few of priests, monks, and nuns were what to be the spiritual nurture. And Cranmer introduced that to parish life. What's the purpose of the daily office? To take the transforming power of scripture that was at the heart of medieval spirituality and make it accessible to the average person, to make it the birthright of every English person. Um, but let's take a look at the beginning of that paragraph. He led the English phase of this reform of church life and church worship. Does anyone know something, notice something that's missing in that phrase from the Protestant point of view? What did the Reformation first reform? Doctrine. Doctrine. In fact, the articles say that the medieval church not only erred in the manner of life, but in teaching of the faith, right? So we have a very clear desire to present Anglicanism as a, as a branch of a reformed Catholicism and a conscious downplaying of the Protestant character of both Cramner's contributions and of the 16 formularies. And how many formularies did we have in the 16th century? There's three or four, depending on how you group them. The prayer book, obviously, which is mentioned, and the ordinal, how you uh, uh, ordain deacons, clergies, consecrate bishops, that is sometimes lumped together with the prayer book, sometimes kept separately. What was the doctrinal contribution of the 16th century? The articles. That's not mentioned, are they? And what the third formulary was something called the Book of Homilies, to make mm -hmm. sure good sound preaching from right. a Protestant understanding of salvation was required reading in every parish church. That's also not mentioned. So we have an, we have an emphasis on the power of the prayer book as an ordering of worship, but no real conscious engagement with the doctrinal changes that Cramner made in that worship. Now, who wants to be brave and read the next paragraph? Shall we come, oh, uh, would, the, would the rector like to read that? Since he's volunteered others on oh, his this. I'm gonna completely embarrass myself. I don't have my prayer book sitting here in front of me. I'm enjoying the heck out of this. I'm gonna go to Caroline Stalvey. Caroline, do you have your prayer book? Because I'd love to hear a female voice. There it is. How about Caroline Stalvey, Dr. Null? That's fine. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to embarrass you. I apologize. Caroline? So for a century? Um, the, no, the, par the first full paragraph. I think I said sentence, but I meant for a century, the Church of England. Yes. For a century, the Church of England matured and broadened as a tradition separated from the Church of Rome. Its pastoral, musical, 
an aesthetical life flourished. Jeremy Taylor, Lancelot Andrews, Thomas Tallis, William Byrd, and George Herbert are but a few of the names associated with this flowering. Also begun were three centuries of colonial expansion that exported the Book of Common Prayer to countless cultures and people groups the world over. Too much time. Okay, what does the very first sentence tell us? Continuity with Rome came before this. And that the 16th century Reformation was immature and narrow. That the formularies of the 16th century were immature and narrow. Bishop Fitz, are you able to give us a three sentence estimation of the value of Jeremy Taylor as uh, a role model for modern Anglicanism, or at least his deviation from the 16th century? Well, I can say that uh, Jeremy Taylor did indeed have a grasp of the holiness of God and the demand of the law upon us, but he was tragically trapped into an idea that uh, you must be righteous on yourself, your, your own self, in order to go to Holy Communion, or you will eat to your damnation. So it was a great exhortation to behave and to obey the law. Uh, and only in his prayers do you find the kind of uh, gospel that we find in Scripture. That it is not, we're not trust, go to communion or trusting in our own righteousness, but in the in thy manifold and great mercies. Bishop Ellison, that was a lovely, um, kind, um, and balanced um, pointing out that he has a real grasp of the holiness of God, but unfortunately, he has picked up the least gospel elements of the medieval period and emphasizes that Christianity is what you do for God, not what God does for you. And Jeremy Taylor uh, said that if you sin the same sin seven times over, it's increasingly difficult for God to forgive you because of your bad choices. Um, and that means you see a shift going on from the 16th century period. Um, but all of that in, in the preface is considered good and valuable. It's part of the ongoing tradition where we are becoming more both uh, uh, Catholic and reformed. And uh, the very last thing I would like someone to read. Um, is there any, do we have any volunteers? I'll read it. The evangelical and Anglo-Catholic movements of the 19th century profoundly affected Anglican self-understanding and worship in different, often seemingly contradictory ways. 
But yet the Book of Common Prayer 1662 was common to every period of this development. For nearly five centuries, Cranmer's prayer book idea had endured to shape what emerged as a global Anglican church, that its missional and adaptive as in its early centuries, authoritatively scriptural and creedal, as in its greatest season of reform, and evangelical, Catholic, and charismatic in its apology and in its worship as now globally manifest. So what's it saying? We are united in one Anglican tradition by our prayer book. And that's the task that the revisers have set before them to try to get something that is comprehensive enough for everyone, um, but still recognizable to everyone as Anglican. And that is a very difficult task. And so if you hear me saying some parts of how they've done that, I don't particularly find uh, as faithful to the 16th century as I would like. That doesn't mean there, that I could have done a better job. It is a very difficult task, but that's what they've said to have something that unifies us and that we can all say together. Now, how do you create a modern document for everyone when you say, because we're part of the Jerusalem Declaration, we, ad we adhere to the 39 Articles and the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, especially because there has been theological development in Anglicanism since the 1662 Prayer Book. That's the task, and that's the difficulty. Um, I'd like to look briefly at the idea of human nature. Human nature is absolutely central to the Protestant Reformation. Before the Protestant Reformation, when you, you were born with a disordered, with something called concupiscence, uh, the, the law of uh, sin and death that work in your members, the flesh worth against the spirit. And in the medieval period, because of that, if you were not baptized, you would, you would um, not be able to be saved. But when you were baptized, two things happened. The sin of Adam's guilt was removed, but not the consequences you would still have an inclination to rebel against God, but you were given within you something called sanctifying grace. And that was a power, the Holy Spirit in you, to fight the inclination. Anyone ever remember Porky Pig? Porky Pig, good angel. Porky Pig, bad angel, whispering in the ears. That's literally, well, not with Porky Pig, but that's the concept that was read over a baby in baptism that he now had or she now had the power to say no to sin 
because the Holy Spirit was in her, but because she was an heir of Adam and Eve, she had concupiscence, that power in her, tempting her to do bad. And what would make the difference was when she decided to say yes to temptation. Now, it just could have been a mental saying yes. If a man lusts with his eye and in his heart would consent to have relations, uh, but refrains only because of fear of punishment, guess what? That's a mortal sin, and you're damned at that moment for that. But if you don't consent in your heart, it's not sin. And therefore, they taught that if you preserved this personal righteousness given to you, then you would be able to be saved based on something in you. And what happened when you committed a mortal sin? You lost that grace, and then you had to go back to the priest through confession to have the grace um, um, readmitted. Now, uh, the medievals were incredibly logical. Um, are we a finite being or an infinite being? Brian? Finite. Is the Holy Spirit a finite being or an infinite being? Infinite. How can an infinite being be locked in a finite being? That doesn't make logical sense, does it? That's why in the medieval period, they made a distinction between uncreated grace, which is the Holy Spirit, and created grace, which is the Holy Spirit active in you. So when you hear a Catholic talk about grace, what you're talking about is the Holy Spirit in you that sanctifies you and enables you to say no. Now, Luther, have you ever had that re oh gosh, have you ever had that really awful experience where after you've done something, um, uh, you got in a fight, a religious fight, and you stuck up for Jesus and you held the biblical position, come what may, and you were so proud of yourself for, for standing up in the heat of peer pressure. And then about 10 years later, the Holy Spirit quietly whispers and says, remember when you really stood up for me and your chest begins to swell and your shoulders go back and then the Holy Spirit whispers. You know, that had nothing to do with me. That was just all about you. You felt rejected because they didn't agree with you. And you fought back that the principle was right, but your motivation was all about preserving your own sense of dignity. Has that ever happened to you or only to kids from Kansas? Luther realizes that the problem with the medieval understanding that concupiscence what we would take today call the shadowy subconscious moves us in ways that we're not always aware of. 
And just because we're not aware of them and don't give conscious consent, that doesn't mean our actions aren't tainted by our subconscious. And when you say that, then the whole medieval system of God making you holy to be acceptable to him falls. And so Luther pioneers a second understanding of grace. Grace, not as the power of the Holy Spirit in us, but grace as God's attitude towards us. Grace is the idea that although we are a mixed bag, that we have real wonderful virtues, none of them are untainted by our subconscious selfishness that in small or large ways um, are affecting our relationships with God, others, and ourselves. And therefore we must have a relationship based not on us, but on God for us. And that's the whole point of justification by faith. Now, what's interesting is Cramner did a wonderful Anglican thing. Guess what he did? He used both definitions, which can cause problems. So if you see in his colleagues about grace preventing us, what's he talking about? Philippians 2.13, the Holy Spirit at work in our hearts so that we will desire what God wants and act on it. That is a, that is a traditional medieval understanding of grace. But then in his homilies on salvation, he can talk about grace as God's attitude towards us despite the fact that we struggle with sin, we still have a relationship with him. That's important because in the medieval system, Christians were foster children. When we were good, we belonged to God. But when we were bad, we were sent back to the devil until we could prove we were good enough to come back to God. And we went through this revolving door. And Cramner says, no, Philippians 1.6, God will complete the good work he has begun in you. And there will be ups and downs and still accountability, but you are a son and daughter forever in Christ because your relationship is based on his promise to you, not your ability to be perfectly faithful to your promise to him. And you can be assured of the power of unconditional love for you and therefore fears cast out. And you can begin to concentrate on loving God and others because you know God has taken care of your future and is drawing you to be like him, to love others as unconditionally as he loves you. Now, therefore, we have a very famous Cramnerian line in morning and evening prayers confession. Can anyone think where he talks about the human condition? And there is no health in us. 
How can Cranmer say that? Doesn't the Holy Spirit do something in us? Isn't there any good in us? Of course there's good in us. How can there not be? Because the Holy Spirit will bear fruit. When Cranmer talks about lively faith, he means that faith that we are given from God to trust in his promise because it enables us to experience God's love, that faith will produce fruit. But no fruit will be untarnished in this life by our shadowy subconscious, by our ongoing presence of concupiscence, which Article 9 of the 39 Articles clearly states regardless of whether we are aware of it, concupiscence has the nature of sin. Now, when modern ears hear there is no health in us, they don't have an appreciation for his particular doctrinal understanding. And what they hear is shame and condemnation that we are worthless rather than we're profoundly unhealthy. So there, is, there was a ferocious debate in the, in the prayer book committee and in the House of Bishops whether to retain that line. The House, the 789 prayer book, you may notice, deleted it. But it's in the 1662 prayer book. Um, and some folks thought that it said that it means there is nothing, there's no saving health in us. Therefore, the folks who thought this line was demeaning to grace put in it, apart from grace, there is no health in us. And when it comes to Holy Communion, and uh, the prayer of humble access, where we say, of, um, uh, we talk about, um, when we, we are not so much worthy to gather up the crumbs under your table, does that ever offend your sense of pride and, and you're standing in grace in Jesus. For many folks, it's been offensive. So in the 219 prayer book, you have the option of saying, apart from your grace, we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs. But actually, again, for Cramner, it's never questioned that you're unconditionally loved and worthy because God sees you with Christ's righteousness even though your concupiscence means there's nothing perfectly spiritually healthy in you, you have a COVID disease that is problematic, but isn't the basis of the relationship. Um, and he would agree that because of grace, we stand firm in God. But when you put it like this, Apart from grace, there's no health in us. That sounds like you're saying grace in the sense of the medieval sense, that God has put a worthiness 
in you. And that gift of worthiness makes you worthy, even though without that gift, you would be unworthy. And for Cramner, that would be incomprehensible because the whole reason why you had to have a Protestant Reformation was the minute that God's perfect righteousness is put in you, your concupiscence taints it. And it's no longer a basis of you being worthy. So if you understand apart from grace in the sense of the Protestant, of God's acceptance of you despite your failings, that's true. But again, in the Protestant understanding of grace, how come God is able to accept you? Not based on anything in you. As Cramner's homily on salvation says. So here we have sincere people trying to follow the 1662 prayer book, but not necessarily lining up with the doctrine behind it. But you want to have a, a book that's there for everyone. What do you do? One place it's optional. One place it's mandatory, but however you interpret it, it is a distinct change from the 16th century, but it may be hotly contested whether that's a good or bad thing. But those are the kinds of decisions that the prayer book people had to go through on lots of different levels. Um, and I, our time is exhausted. But there are several things we can point out with, because uh, let me just say this about the Eucharistic text. It does not, there are two, there are two texts, have you noticed? One that says, it calls itself the Anglican standard text. The minute you say that, you know some, that there's a, there's a game going on, right? Because there isn't a, a single Anglican standard text, as they've tried to do. But listen to how they, the, the preface of communion describes the Anglican standard text. Quote, the Anglican standard text is essentially that of the Holy Communion service of the Book of Common Prayer of 1662 and successor books through 1928, 1929, and 1962. What's it saying? That we have broadened it out with other streams, and therefore this Anglican standard text is not simply the 1662, but it is the fruit of generations of Anglican liturgical scholarship reworking the text according to um, the development of ideas in certain parts of Anglicanism. So that's there up front, that the Anglican standard text is actually a, com uh, um, a compile, I cannot talk, compile, compilation, a compilation of Anglican, it is the fruit of a series of liturgical revisions, it is not just the 1662. Now, I assure you that there will be people who say that that tradition has been faithful to the 1662, 
and other people who say that it has not been faithful to the 1662. And it will be the topic of many PhD dissertations and giving an opportunity for a new generation of liturgical scholars to get their jobs. Um, but that's what it clearly says. How can you as a layman know that this is not simply a repristination of the 1662? If you look at the rubrics at the end, it points out that the order is very different from the 1662. And that order was designed by Cramner with a very specific theological agenda. And there's an important footnote they have taken from the Scottish prayer book, a prayer of consecration, and they have added, this paragraph does not occur in the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, but ecumenical consensus expects its use. What's that telling us? That they are not caught. Now, some folks will argue that that prayer is implicit in the 1662, but I think Cramner would have been quite surprised because what they did is they the 1637 Scottish prayer book mashed up the prayer of concentration from 1549 and 1552 to create something that Cramner had actually rejected. Let me read you the paragraph in 2019. So now, O merciful Father, in your great goodness, we ask you to bless and sanctify with your word and Holy Spirit these gifts of bread and wine. Now, that's straight out of 1549, where the Cramner's emphasis in his language is on the bread and wine. In 1552, Cramner doesn't ask God to bless the bread and wine. He asks God to bless the congregation so that when they receive the bread and wine, then in a spiritual way, they will really drink Christ's blood and eat Christ's flesh, but it's not localized in the bread and the wine. But what we have, obviously we've talked about blessing these bread and wine to be, to be the body of Christ. And then we add, may be partakers of this most blessed body and blood. So they combine both. And if you check the second prayer, it says that the bread and wine be vehicles for us. And second, that we may be worthy recipients. That's their attempt to create a standard Anglican text from the divergence in our liturgical history. What does all this mean? Well, I actually really like the Greek way of thinking about liturgy. They don't try to explain everything. They simply say, mystery. And I think that as something that the reality is, I'm for, I, in another time, if, I, if I'm ever invited back, I'm more than happy to talk in detail about Cramner's understanding of the Eucharist and to defend it, um, because I think it is, it, it is biblically sound. 
Um, and it's what I personally believe. But the bottom line is that any explanation is partial because it is a heavenly miracle beyond anyone's comprehension. And that when I approach the, the, uh, the uh, altar rail, what is coming to my mind is not debating the various understandings of what I'm about to receive, even though I could articulate and have a lovely internal conversation about all that. None of that's edifying. But the reality is, in a mystical way, we are united to Christ, and that unity transforms us. And we are able to become one with his body because we both eat his, his flesh and drink his blood. And that's the central tradition that they are trying in a variety of ways to convey. And even if they've had to make difficult choices in an unruly uh, variety of views within Anglicanism, they have centered on the supernatural nature of us being united to Christ through this means of grace. And Cramner would have said, amen. Questions? Dr. Noel, I wanna say thank you very much for um, agreeing to stay. That's my dog, sorry. I thought it was a critic. No, that's a French bulldog. You're in Germany. And so the French, of course, have something to say about what you're saying. I'm going to get rid of him. Um, I'll be right back. Anyone remembers the whole spiel I gave at the beginning, trying to mute people just to avoid that kind of thing. And of course, Gary is the one that brings it out. That's great. I've got that on him forever now. Uh, please, please don't well, be shy. Ryan, isn't it, Ryan, yeah. isn't it wonderful who having a rector, a boss, who just shows you how right you are. <laughs> the best feature. <laughs> all right, all right, I heard that. I've gotten rid of the dog. Um, no, I, what I wanted to say again was thank you for agreeing to do this, but, and not but, and um, coming through Trinity School for Ministry and coming out into the Anglican world, the debate about the streams of Anglicanism um, are what we, we clergy people seem to love to talk about. And what I feel like I heard you say tonight is the 2019 prayer book uh, written uh, by the ACNA, the Anglican Church of North America, almost exclusively, um, has taken the streams of Anglicanism and turned them into a very, very wide river. I mean, it's no longer streams. It sounds like from what I've heard you say in the 48 minutes, and, a, and that's not comprehensive, but what we've got in the 2019 book is a little bit of something for everybody, starting with the medieval period coming up to today, including maybe the Catholic Church. But isn't that very middle of the road, very Anglican? Um, I'm glad you heard that. That was probably not what I was intending for you to take away. Um, what's the problem with Richard Hooker's three-legged stool? Mm. Yeah. If you think they're all equal, you have to deny sola scriptura. 
Well, the reality is they can't be equal. Something has to norm the others. And in reality, when people say the three-legged stool from a progressive point of view, what they really mean is reason trumps tradition and scripture, right? Yes, it's certainly not equal. Right. And the harsh reality of, I mean, I would hope that I'm a three streams person myself. Um, I've done a lot of work in patristics um, and I'm really deeply edified by liturgy in the daily office. Um, and uh, again, I'm, uh, you know, Bible believing, born again, and come, uh, I mean, uh, well, it was a card carrying member of Holy Trinity Brompton in London. But let's be honest, there is not possible for three streams for them all to be equal. You have to have one that norms the other. So for many people who are three streams, they grew up with a Roman Catholic understanding that um, your use of grace merits more grace. And therefore, um, they discovered the Holy Spirit because they were trying to do all that uh, sanctification in their own strength. And if that's not death, I don't know what is. And through the Holy Spirit, they came and found the Bible. But often, how does the Bible function in those circles? Not as promise, but as law, instructing them on how to grow in grace. So that's three streams, right? If you take someone who begins in the Pentecostal world and becomes Anglican. The Pentecostal world is based on the notion. I mean, do you understand how people originally spoke in tongues? Let me explain. They were part of the Wesleyan holiness movement, looking for perfection. That basically your will was bound. Wesley combined Protestant emphasis in his justification with medieval Catholic sanctification in his sanctification. So your will is bound before you get saved. But once you're saved and God has released your will, then you have to use that will in, in, in pursuing godliness. And as you do that, God will honor and enable you to grow in holiness and theoretically reach a, um, a point of Christian perfectionism. Now, Wesley is a deeply godly man. He's not an idiot. He understands that no one ever gets free of sin in this life. But what he means by Christian perfection means that you can live without a conscience sense that you're violating the Holy Spirit. That through ignorance, you may, um, but not that you're going to have a, you're not going to have a Roman seven battle anymore. That's Christian perfectionism. And as they sought to use their will, spiritual disciplines to pursue holiness, they started speaking in tongues. And so what be, 
became paradynamic in the Pentecostal world is that once God works in you, then the more you are faithful, the more the Holy Spirit he will give you. Have you ever wondered why in the Pentecostal world you have to have enough faith to be healed? Because it's a reward for how you have used the spirit that he gave you. Mm. Ever wondered where prosperity gospel comes? It's again a reward for making good choices. All prosperity gospel does is turn spiritual blessings into material blessings, but it's still rooted in that notion that God will reward you for what you do. And therefore, if you come from a Pentecostal, then you look at the sacraments and you see that, the Catholic tradition, that's a vehicle for the Holy Spirit. And then you see the Bible as what it teaches you to believe and to hold on to and have faith by so that you can earn. From my personal pastoral experience, what is the biggest problem, pastoral problem amongst um, charismatic clergy? Any guesses? God did such amazing things through X. Am I not good enough? Am I not trying hard enough? Am I not praying hard enough? How come my church hasn't exploded like that one did? Because surely I'm doing what it takes for revival to come. I'm praying. I'm fat. No. Now, getting yourself worth by comparing yourself to other clergy is not just a Pentecostal problem. Is that a fair statement? But that, that theological system, that becomes a problem. And the whole point of this is that there isn't anything that is three streams equal. You will have to choose from amongst those streams what is the foundational value. And then you take from the, from the other two that which makes it and fits in. And that's what, the prayer, that's what this prayer book has done is tried to fit everything together, but there is a foundational principle, and that's not the 16th century. It's a more Anglo-Catholic understanding of our tradition, but acknowledging that it's not exclusive. But that would be the, the deep river channel of the 2019 prayer book. And one of the difficulties with that is that's not what was behind the formularies. And so they've done their best to try to square the circle. And, and I know that Archbishop Bob Duncan consciously did his best to find a way for people like me to feel that there were things that, that, that we could use the prayer book to include us. You will notice that the 1662 order is possible. It is a rubric. It is at the end. It's not the mainstream tradition, but it's there. And that's because of 
Bishop Duncan's foresight to try within um, the, the Anglo-Catholic stream that is the main heartbeat of the prayer book to be thoughtful and sensitive to others. You may notice that there is an acclamation, Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us, right? But right under it, Christ our Passover has been sacrificed once for all time. That's for people like me that would want to make clear that we're not in any way, shape, or form re-sacrificing Christ on Sunday morning. And no good Anglo Catholic would believe that as well today, but that was one of the ancient problems and one of which the 16th century formularies pushed back against. So I guess what I'm trying to say, it, there is a very, and that's why I read through the preface, there is a very clear dominant channel amongst the three streams, but dominant is not the same thing as exclusive. And I'm grateful. Is that fair enough, Gary? Dr. Null, I had a question for you. I've been trying to, the daily office you mentioned, I've been trying to do that in the morning and the evening. Um, also mentioned perfectionism and I sometimes battle this being a legalistic kind of routine, how did, would you encourage us as we try to use the prayer book more for it to not become legalistic? Well, let me share with you Cramner's spirituality um, and what he wanted the prayer book to represent. He would say that every command is a promise. That we, here's the question. Cross country runner, 100 yards to the finish line. Coach is standing at the finish line with the stopwatch. What goes through the athlete's mind when she or he sees the coach with the stopwatch at the finish line? Any ex-athletes want to talk about their trauma? <laughs> They're the athletes thinking, I sure hope that when I cross the line, it's going to be good enough, that the coach is going to be happy with me, right? There is a really famous uh, saying in Christian sports ministry, which I'm doing my best to discourage but I'm afraid I'm a voice crying in the wilderness. And it says that you compete for an audience of one. That means that you shouldn't be competing to please, uh, to earn your, your own approval of yourself, of your coach, of your parents, of your team, of your country. You should only be competing for one person. But if God is an audience, where is he when you compete? He's in the stands. He's in the sidelines. He's watching what you do to decide whether it's good enough. And because that is so ingrained in our culture, 
when we read of what we are called to be like, we instantly see God as the coach at the, at the finish line, seeing whether or not we're trying hard enough to measure up. Are we running fast enough? But let me give you an alternative image. And you can, and this is a trick question. Um, and what you need to do is to think biologically. What does that athlete need more than anything else to finish the race? Oxygen. Heart. Heart. Now you're thinking of effort, which is not bad, but think biologically. You? His heart's got to pump, if that's what you mean, yeah. Yeah. Veins to get the muscles. How about air? Mm. Without air, nothing else is going to work. The heart's not going to pump. The legs aren't going to move, right? Is God the coach at the end? Or is he the Holy Spirit who literally mm. inhabits you and enables you to breathe every step of the way? Carolyn, I don't mean to embarrass you, but do you have a Bible handy? Could you read Philippians 2.12? Caroline, I just want to say you're making Ryan and I look very good at this moment. Thank you. You said 2.12? Yeah. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That sounds like sweat equity to me, doesn't it to you? That means we're not puppets. We have to make good decisions, right? There is no progress in the spiritual life without making good decisions. And sometimes it's hard to make good decisions. And sometimes it's even harder to consistently make good decisions, right? But here's the question, is our hope based that on us making good decisions, when push comes to shove and we're struggling, do we just beat ourselves up and shame ourselves to make us try harder or is there a better way? Could you read Philippians 2.13, the very next verse? For it is God Please. who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Oh, Carolyn, help me out. What's that mean? God is our oxygen. He's the... Exactly. That the very willpower that we need to make good choices is the result of God's gracious handiwork in us. We don't get off the hook not having to make choices. But when we struggle, we don't prick ourselves to try harder. We cry out to God and say, your command is your promise of what you will do in me. I cannot in my own strength 
change or grow, but you have promised, could you read Philippians 1.6? It's another one of those priceless verses from Philippians 1.6. I mean, from Philippians. And I am sure of this, that he began this work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Ryan, I'm sure you're a Greek scholar. Is there a footnote or some textual variant that says, if you try hard enough? There is not. If you're good enough? Doesn't say that. If I show serious effort and earnestness? No condition. It's God's promise to us. Now, it's a promise that goes through our will, not around it. But our hope is that when our wills are not cooperating, we remind God of his promise to change us from the inside out and give us the desire and the ability to act. So when you read something in scripture and it shames you, that's always the devil. The devil says, because you're not doing this, you have no worth in God's sight. Hmm. That's shame, right? That's condemnation. That is never from Jesus. Conviction of sin is, and conviction is painful. But what conviction says, look at how much I love you. Let me help you be more like me. Even in the rebuke, there is a positive affirmation that he's not done with you yet. And he's not surprised that you're struggling. And his love and not your faithfulness will get the last word. Because that's what he's working in you. So by no means do I want you to hear me saying devaluing the significant role our choices make. But according to Cramner, our hope isn't in them, but in the God who's promised to bring out in us though the right choices and to be persistent in us until we do. So when you, when you hear that say, my worth and value is not based on my performance, but on the performance of Jesus on the cross. Lord, you say there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. But I can see there is a difference between what scripture says I should be and what I am. I'm not going to pretend to be something different as if I, can, I couldn't save myself. I can't sanctify myself. I'm going to be honest, but I'm not going to let my foibles, my flaws get the last word because you have promised to be the answer and the solution. So the more my sin is pointed out, the more I will cling to you to transform me from the inside out. But may I say one last thing on this point, and I should probably let you go. Um, this is debatable, and Ryan may wish to come back. But I believe firmly that sanctification isn't so much about my increasing awareness of how holy I am, even though 
we do make concrete progress in the Christian life. The reason why is you have to grow closer to Jesus to really understand how much unlike Jesus you are. So the more progress you make, the more God cleans you up. When you get out of the foothills, to your horror, you discover there are still mountains that in his grace he hid from you. And if you were ever so blessed as to get out of the mountains, then he shows you the Alps. That we have this simultaneous conviction that in Christ we are whole. And that he is at work to make us more like him and to give us the peace that comes from obedience. Not all suffering comes from sin, but all sin causes suffering. And forgiveness of sin doesn't remove consequences that one will have to walk through and watch God redeem. Therefore, it is better not to sin. Therefore, it is so wonderful that God helps us and change. But just because he is active, concupiscence never goes away in this life. And it will rise up from the subconscious to the conscious in unexpected and unhelpful ways. And we will need more of the Holy Spirit to crucify that. There is a reason why we are commended every day to crucify the flesh and not as if it's just a light bulb. You turn it on or you turn it off and you're done with it. But the good news is that even as we struggle, he is at work and the end point is sure. Questions? Um, Ryan, shall we cut it off now or give them 10 more minutes? We're over the promised time and I want to be sensitive to people's time, even if I'm not sensitive to the clock. We are uh, over the time. Um, uh, I'll allow one more if there's a burning one in somebody. One more question. And that's all. When is part two? There we go. When is part two? Uh, Gary, Gary, and I are already working on that. Let's, let's you'll, you'll have to ask your your <laughs> your, uh, your your ecclesiastical authorities <laughs> and get Bishop Allison to put in a good word too. That always helps. Um, thank you all so much for joining us, and Doctor Noel, thank you so much for uh, giving us your time and your expertise. Yes, round of applause for you. Um, that was uh, very. Uh, pastoral and gospel-centered, and um, I appreciate it very much. And we especially appreciate you giving up um, your night for us and the, um, the time that you're doing this. We definitely appreciate you accommodating us so so well. Um, uh, Gary? Thank uh, you. Ryan, I, Bishop Allison, I see you there on my screen. I got all these pictures of people. Bishop Allison, will you pray uh, the blessing on us tonight as we close out? It would be a, it would be a lovely way to end, I think. Well, may I I say one thing before Bishop Allison prays? Please. I do uh, a lot of uh, traveling, um, teaching and talking about 
Cramner and uh, the, the Gospel of Grace and Gratitude. Um, one of the things that I am so grateful for is how that he and Mrs. Allison have always opened up um, their home to me and making me feel so warm and welcome. And um, uh, my desire to be part of your 300th anniversary is a direct result of the Allisons making me feel Georgetown is a second home and how much I've enjoyed with them uh, partaking in your congregational life and worship. We don't count this, this one that eliminates others. We're looking for you anytime you can ever get here. Bless you, brother. Thank you. The peace of God which passes, passes all understanding. Keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and the love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, and the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be amongst you and remain with you always. Amen. Amen. Thank you all so much, Dr. Noel. Thank you again.